Greetings and welcome to another episode of the Project Red podcast. My name is Brian and with me as always is my friend and business partner, Mr. James Strong. How are you doing, brother? Really good. Thanks, Brian. How are things your end? Looking like a, an amazing backdrop there behind you. I know. Fantastic. Um, maybe we should start making these podcast videos so that I can, I can show off where I am from time to time. But yeah, I'm, it's, it's another beautiful morning in Guatemala. I know our listeners will be tired of hearing this because this is, this is how we start every podcast. The fact that it's a, a beautiful morning for me. But yeah, I'm at the lake in Guatemala. It's absolutely gorgeous. And uh, yeah, very, very, uh, very, very happy to be here. We um, have a fantastic guest today, a Mr. James Taylor, a former professional cricket player for England, who um, has got a, a really incredible story. And we're definitely going to get into the nuts and bolts of that. Mr. James Taylor, how are you? And welcome. Very good. Thanks, Brian. And James, thank you very much for having me, guys. I am very envious of you, Brian, looking at that backdrop in Guatemala. What a, what a spot it looks you have there. Unfortunately, it's not quite as sunny and glamorous here in Nottingham. It's a bit cold, cloudy and wet, unfortunately. But nice to be on with you guys. Thanks for having me. Great. It's an absolute pleasure. It's an honor for us to have you as well. And like we mentioned there, um, a lot of our listeners will be, will be familiar with who you are. Um, but would you mind just giving us a little bit of rundown of your history and kind of, you know, you were a, a former professional cricket player for England. So a little background about, you know, how you got there and then uh, we'll keep it going from there. Yes. Well, uh, it, if I went into everything, it would be um, too long for this podcast. But just a brief overview. So... Um, I, I was very fortunate to have the upbringing I had. I went to boarding school um, initially, one at Maidwell Hall in Northamptonshire, and then went to Shrewsbury School uh, in Shropshire. Um, so I've been, I was boarding school from the age of seven to 18, started young. My parents wanted to ship me off to boarding school to play as much sport as I could, uh, which was brilliant. Um, I absolutely loved every minute of it. Then I was in Worcester Academy. So initially I was best at football and rugby but my cricket took off from a younger uh, a younger age um, so cricket was the way and that was my path into professional sports so I was first in Worcester Academy for four years Leicester signed me from Worcestershire at the age of 17 my last year at school um, so I was at Leicestershire for four or five years and then just down the road was the bigger some might say better club um, Nottinghamshire so that's where I am now I, I moved to Nottinghamshire at the age of 21, uh, played for them four or five years. And that was my first uh, year at Nottinghamshire was when I played for England um, in test cricket. I had actually played an ODI cap when I was at Leicestershire against Ireland uh, when I was 20. Um, but the first time I really tasted uh, serious test cricket was when I moved to Nottinghamshire. Um, I played nearly 40 times for England, um, seven test matches, um, and, and unfortunately, my career finished when I was 26. I had to retire um, due to a heart condition. It's a lot easier mm -hmm. to explain. Most people probably know a footballer called Fabrice Mwamba, um, who dropped down on the football pitch and effectively died for a little bit and then got brought back to life, very fortunately. Um, the right people were there at the right time. And I have the same condition as him. I um, Fortunately, mine wasn't quite as bad. I didn't quite go as far as him, um, but 
cut a long story short, I had a cardiac arrest effectively on the first game of the season back in April 2016. And that meant my career um, was, was done and everything I knew was done uh, from then on. Um, and here I am. I, since I played cricket, I, um, I worked in the media with Sky, BBC, BT Sport uh, for a couple of years, as well as coaching for England 19s and Northamptonshire. And now I've been selected for a couple of years. So that is a brief, sorry, went on a little bit. Um, but that's a little overview of my life so far to date. Awesome. Fantastic. I think I can relate to your boarding school background. So I, I didn't go when I was seven, but I did go to boarding school when I was 16. And right. so I went for my A-levels um, in a college in Mid Wales called Cross College Brecon. Yep. Um, and again, like it's a big rugby school, obviously, being in Wales. Yeah. And it was, you know, my parents gave me the option of going there or to my local school or, or, you know, various, pretty much any college I wanted to. And I chose that one because there were sports six days a week, rugby games twice a week and just amazing facilities. And that was it. That was, you know, that was my life was training every day. Um, my academics suffered for that. <laughs> but um, in the same way, I just loved the environment. You're living with your mates and just like, yeah, it was such a good atmosphere to really like hone the skills, find out like, you know, what sports you're passionate about. And, you know, I think obviously I've never reached the heights of yourself, but again, it was just such a great environment to really progress and learn. Yeah. I, I mean, like so, I was very fortunate and almost spoiled in a way to have the options that we had going to boarding school and the facilities that allowed me to progress on to where I got to in, in professional sport. But that gave me the platform and the coaches. People always talk about you as an individual, but it's so often the people that have shaped your direction and push you mm. in the right, um, on the right path. And I had so many good people and mentors. Everybody looks about, about the individual and the talent they have and the skill they have, but it's the mentors along the way that drive you. Uh, I was very fortunate um, that I had the same mentors the whole way through. From eight, I had my first coach that caught, taught me at, uh, at Maidle Hall uh, called Steve Schofield. Uh, and he coached me all the way to 26. Then at my next boarding school, Shrewsbury, I had another mentor. Again, he taught me all the way to when I finished. And then my next one um, in professional cricket. Um, so boarding school allowed me and set me on that path um, with so many mm. good people, so many good facilities to allow me to uh, flourish. That's so true. And I think you're right. Is that I think a lot of talent does get lost at such an early age because the, there aren't the right people there to, to provide the guidance. And I think that's really where, you know, the investment, especially in the UK needs to happen at all, you know, all sectors, whether it's private, public, you know, comprehensive school, we need the opportunity and the investment that, you know, this talent is identified and people, you know, even, even if they aren't naturally talented at a young age, I think you can attest to hard work and dedication will get you there as well. So providing that structure that if someone wants to make it in any field or any athletic sport, they can get there with the right guidance, the right mentorship. And that's great to hear that you, you know, you had access to those people from such a young age as well. Yeah, I, that is, that is spot on. And it's, it's like always, we always talk about talent um, and skill, but it's, it's, it's the top part of your body that uh, matters the most. And it gets you talent and skill gets you so far, but um, if you're not dedicated, you won't go that extra mile. You won't put in those out extra hours when those other people aren't training. You need to be the one that's training to make the most of what you do have um, and to really flourish and take you as far as you, you, you can go and your talent and your skill allows you to go. You need to maximize everything. Mm. 
I wanted to, um, I'm, I'm always super curious. So like you say, James, that you went to boarding school at the age of seven. Mm. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not familiar with all those, those schools that you mentioned, but am I right in assuming that, that that was like a conscious decision? I mean, I'm presuming of your parents, because I guess at seven years old, you weren't really in charge of your life. <laughs> but was that a conscious decision where they said they want to put you in these schools because they want you to be an athlete? Was uh, that something that was... You know what? I was always so I as a as a child. Um, so my, I'm from a horse horse family. Like they were always riding. So my dad was a jockey. My mum did eventing. So three day eventing. So dressage, show jumping, cross country. Uh, my sister rode for Great Britain uh, juniors. Or a lot of my cousins did. I think I'm the only boy in the family. Well, I'm the only boy in the family, but most my cousins that are a female all rode for Great Britain. Uh, at junior level uh, and I went down the ball sport path um, I was very lucky I, my parents were I was from a fortunate background but I was never inside I was always outside kicking a ball throwing a ball against the wall whether it was on my own or with the next door neighbor um, so I was competitive from a young age and I loved playing ball sports so my parents age seven sent me to boarding school which was actually early I went a term early uh, because they wanted me to be outdoors and play and uh, have access to playing sport with other kids uh, and it was it was brilliant the school that I went to you were outside all the time um, like I said you had opportunities you have facilities um, to put you in teams to play competitively and we um, like James we played five six times a week um, which not many boys girls in this day and age have access to be able to play that much and I'm a big believer in opportunities and experiences get as many experiences under your belt so it gives you an opportunity to learn and learn from any um experience whether it's good or bad and um skipping forward a long way uh, like even talking about getting as many experiences under your belt you never know when you might be able to learn when i was playing test cricket for england i was still playing club cricket like that just doesn't happen I, because I never knew when I might learn something new and I'd be able to take it into the international scene or mm. the domestic professional scene. And it was the same mm. with school, um, school sport. I just love playing any sport um, for any side. Give me a ball, a bat, and I, I was your man to play in a game. Amazing. So you mentioned, obviously, you were very passionate about rugby and football and you know, clearly very naturally talented because I believe you had football trials also um, at Leicester City, is that correct? Yeah, I, I was in I was in the pathway, should we say, at Leicester City, um, and because I was at boarding school, uh, just training and stuff. And because I was at boarding school, they want you to train however many days a week. And with boarding school, it's not feasible. Mm. Um, so that that Leicester City pathway kind of uh, disappeared. But the reason why I went to Shrewsbury is to play football because I, I believed it was one of the best schools in the country at football. Uh, best public schools um, and that's why I went there it happened that they were also a brilliant or they turned into a brilliant cricket school amazing facilities great coaches and I had a really good year at, at cricket as well so that certainly helped but I, I love rugby I love rugby and football um, cricket like I said I went furthest at a younger age which then sent me down the professional route but in my eyes I'd never really thought about it but that's all I knew sport um, mm. with a batter or ball was all I knew so th that was going to be my path I, in what sport I didn't know uh, mm. but I certainly wasn't uh, going to be stuck in an office for too long at that age. Mm. So, so one thing that's very apparent is obviously 
you know, to become an international cricketer, you're going to have to focus at one point. And I think that's that's one thing is, is such an important decision is when do you choose that primary sport and when do you focus so you can, you know, reach the dizzy heights of internationals, you know, representing your country. So, so at what age did you decide cricket was the one, basically? I think it was probably around 16. Well, I was playing for England 15s, uh, 16s, 17s, 19s. But I'm going to say probably 16 when I was playing for England, uh, 15, 16. And my, my football had kind of been my, gone to my second sport. I'd already given up rugby because I had a bad injury and that didn't like the cricket uh, coaches was like, nah, I'm not sure if rugby what quite goes with cricket. Uh, so I kind of put mm-hmm. rugby on the back burner, then cricket, then football slowly went on the back burner because I had another bad injury in football. Um, so cricket was, was the goer because that was the one that I went furthest at um at the time um, but i i'm a big believer is play as many sports for as long as you possibly can because now i think children at a young age are being funneled in one direction and i'm a big yeah. believer in uh, learning as many different movement patterns as you can um in as many different kinds of games as you can hand-eye coordination whether it's with the batter or ball you're kicking you're throwing you're hitting i uh, i believe you will learn more, you will experience more if you play different games and also being involved in different team environments. Um, it's educating you as an individual and as a person. And I was very lucky with my path that all the different teams that I was involved um, involved in, I was like, I went to a nice public school, but I was playing, um, I was playing club cricket from with all different people from all different backgrounds. Um, and it was brilliant. I met so many people from different backgrounds uh, which um was brilliant for my development getting on with people um and it molded me as a person so it's not just about you and your skill in a particular sport it's about you as an individual and learning how to manage yourself in different situations and with different people i think is massive uh, and that's what sport does so yes it's a way of living and it, it was ultimately my living and it's given me the job that I've got now, but also it educates you as an individual and it teaches you how to get on with people because in an international sport, you're on the, you're on the journey with them for 18 months, for two years, for three years, you only get, let's say two weeks off in the year. So you're with the same people. You have to be able to understand yourself and understand individuals as well uh, to make it work. Because if people don't like you, it is a tough, tough field to be in when you're uh, there for a year on the road with them or you can't tolerate other people. So it is, yes, about ultimately being good at what you're, uh, what you're, the field that you're in and being skillful and talented, but also you as a person, you've got to understand yourself, you've got to understand others and what others like, what others don't like is very important as well. It's... Um... Like, like you're saying there, it's, you know, gathering up those experiences, like you said a little bit earlier on, even if it's, even if it's not a good experience at the mm. time, it's really uncomfortable and it sucks, but you, you know, through that little experience, you get, you get this extra little piece of the puzzle, exactly. then, you know, it becomes part of you. And then, you know, you've got that little piece of puzzle. And then next time you face a similar situation, whether it's, you know, like you say, living with a, a, the same group of people for a, an extended period of time, that's, that's phenomenal. That's a phenomenal opportunity to, to hone your social skills, which then will ca- carry over into your next job or another meeting, or, you know, you meet a certain personality where you go, ah, I recognize these, these, these personality traits. And 
you know, it's, it's all part of that, that bigger scheme, you know, the, 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 of life, as it were. A hundred percent. Something, go on. carry on, James. Uh, I, was, I was just going to say, like, if you think from a young age, so from a young age, I was playing football, rugby, cricket. So I was playing football and rugby and cricket at my prep school with all the same people that you know. But then I was playing for a football club. I was playing for a cricket club. I was playing for a rugby club with three different groups of players all up and down the age group. So I was being exposed to playing with men from a young age as well and different older guys. So you're being exposed to so many different individuals mm -hmm. from all different parts of the country uh, and all different backgrounds. So it really, it, it makes you learn. It makes you learn a lot about individuals from different areas um, and what you can do and what you can't do, what you should do and what you shouldn't do. Um, it's really interesting and it's up to that individual if they want to learn it's a great opportunity to learn about themselves and about other individuals as well mm. so true I remember I think my, my I've got a sort of semi-pro career in rugby behind me and I remember my first senior men's game of rugby and I think I was 18 at the time and god it's a steep learning curve <laughs> tricks of the trades how to you know navigate yourself through that environment so I can imagine playing you know, men's sort of level of sport, you know, across a number of different sports is only going to educate you so many tricks of the trade and how to like be a mature athlete at the same time. It must have been, you know, a pretty steep learning curve for you. Yeah, exactly. And I, I actually loved, I loved being the youngest in the group and I loved trying to show off to the older guys and uh, learn from the older guys. But I, I liked it when people, I like being the underdog as well. I like people going, uh, looking at me and all automatically assuming something and then me proving them wrong. So I love to prove people wrong. And I like being the younger guy because I was always the younger guy um, in the team, whether it be at school. When I first went to Shrewsbury, I was in my first year, I was playing for the first, so the under 18s. Uh, so I was always the youngest there. Club cricket, I played for the first team when I was 14 as well, men's cricket. So you're always exposed in the change rooms, learning things as a young guy in the change rooms, let alone on the field. Things, um, so you have things to you shouldn't up. be learning, perhaps. Exactly, exactly. Uh, but it's brilliant from a young age being exposed to one things on the cricket field, but also things off the cricket field and learning um, quickly. You have to learn quickly. And in sport, those that are the best at adapting are more often than not the best. The quickest mm. learners in the world in whatever given field you're talking about are the best in my field. Mm -hmm. Look at Virat Kohli, look at Joe Root, look at AB de Villiers. These guys mm. are the best cricketers in the world because mm. they're the quickest learners. Look at any mm. field in the world, um, whatever it is, the quickest learners are always the best performers. It makes, makes perfect sense what you said there. And I, I was just, I'm curious about like, you know, you, you just mentioned there that you were a 14 year old playing men's cricket and with cricket for you know we might we have a lot of listeners in the states and in canada and they're not completely familiar with it but so you know in very loose terms you have one guy from the opposing team throwing a very very hard ball at a member of the other team very very fast now as a 14 year old have you developed enough in terms of your brain and your eyesight and your reaction speed to face an adult who is throwing a ball very very fast at you how does that work yeah that's a very good but one for those listeners that don't know cricket is a very strange game if you don't understand it and you haven't grown up with it um 
so maybe check it out if you want to um but i'm a big believer in overtraining and i always so i'm at a certain level let's say kids level but i was always preparing to play against men i was let's say the ball was at kids cricket is going 70 miles an hour i was always overtraining at 80 miles an hour i was a big believer whether it's at school or international domestic cricket i was always a believer in play hard trade sorry um train hard play easy that cliche I, I was a big believer in it so challenge yourself as much as you can so when you go out to play it's it's a lot easier and that was the same from mm. when i was younger i was always training that bit further ahead than i was at this stage so when i stepped up to adult cricket yeah it was different even just things like the ball size so as a kid you're playing with a smaller ball when you go out to adult cricket you don't think about these things but when you go out to adult cricket and a little bit older cricket it's a slightly bigger ball um mm. and just little nuances like that um that's slightly different um but I'm a, i would imagine that the the cricket bats as well get heavier and bigger i mean i'm sure you can use whatever bat you're comfortable with but if the ball gets bigger and you're you know when i played cricket i mean obviously i was just a, a hobby cricket player and i remember noticing that oh my god like you know there's such a size difference with the bats so i wonder you know you're facing an adult size cricket ball were you using adult size bats yeah yeah i was because obviously the bigger the bat the the better it is if you can wield it and i think the thing that we Mm. haven't spoken to because obviously the listeners can't see me and maybe they could google me if they don't know me but i was half the size of a normal human being and imagine me at 14 (laughs) let alone um as as i am now so i was always the smallest i was always having to fight that bit harder um for my place or in in the team um or in the game that i was playing because i was a little bit smaller and things were different i would have to score in different areas um and people were always doubting me even when i stepped up to international cricket people said he's too small he can't play uh, and he doesn't hit the ball hard enough. But I was lucky that I was strong. I was pound for pound as strong as anybody in the team. And I had to be because I almost had to compensate for my lack of height. So I need to be stronger and fitter than the rest, um, mm. which I definitely was. Um, and that's why I trained so hard because I had so many doubters and it was a big driver for me is proving people wrong everybody has their motivators whether it's money whether it's uh, other things or whether it's proving people wrong um Mm. and proving people wrong was a big motivator of mine and i loved it and it was so satisfying when somebody doubted you and you basically put the middle finger up to them which was a a real treat which i was very fortunate to happen it's happened a lot of times but obviously it doesn't always go well and you have to learn from those mistakes that you make um and that's what it's about. You back to the learning. Those that are willing to learn as well and not make excuses. Mm-hmm. Look at yourself. Mm-hmm. You can lie to everybody else, but there's one person you can't lie to, and that's yourself. Um, mm-hmm. And that's what it's all about. Um, giving yourself mm-hmm. the best chance by being honest with yourself and willing to learn um, and adapt. Hundred um, percent. And I want to get into kind of like, you know, I'm on one hand, I'm a little bit curious about cricket fitness and cricket training because you know it's, it might seem a bit of a naive question but um cricket unless you're bowling and you're a batsman a lot of the time a lot of the time the fielders just seem to be standing around you know hanging out and, and waiting for something to happen which i mean i i, I know cricket i, I watched it, I, I grew up watching it so i know there's 
there's obviously a lot of there's a there's a burst of speed aspect to it you know if you're standing way out on the boundary you've suddenly got to go from zero to 100 to, to catch that ball what is cricket fitness and training like compared to something like like football or rugby for example where you're non-stop running yeah it's it's really interesting because those guys that don't know the game so well, naturally, you would say, why would you need to be fit? You're just standing in a field whacking a ball or bowling a ball. I mean, it's not too hard, is it? But you, one, it's such a dynamic sport. You need to have pace. You need to have aerobic fitness. Um, one, because those are the, that's the demand of the game. You need to be quick. You need to be agile. You need to last five days. Don't forget the game's five days. You're standing in a field for two of it and you're sprinting constantly but that's not that is that's a massive part of it that's 80 percent of it but don't forget the biggest part of the game um for me is the mental side of the game and if you're not fit you're mentally lagging you're making the wrong decisions under pressure and that's why i smash my fitness and ultimately we'll go we might go on to it but that saved my life i was i love my fitness if i wasn't on the field i was in the gym um one obviously to look as good as i can when i take my top off but also to help my um cricket and be as fit as i could be as strong as i could so i could last longer than anybody else um i wanted to bat for a long period of time i wanted to make the right decision when that decision was required at the right time and if i wasn't fit i'd be sluggish i would be making the wrong decisions i wouldn't be able to bat for two days non-stop um, I wouldn't be able to then go and field for another three days in international cricket. And whilst this is all going on, there's the external pressures that people don't understand. So if you're really tired and you're mentally fatigued, you can't deal with all the external pressures. You've got millions of people watching you on TV, you, let alone the guys that are commentating on TV abusing you because your technique's rubbish and you've played a bad shot at the wrong time and you've let your team down, you let your country down. So there's so many external things that go on top of the little old game of cricket where you're standing in a field bat, um, whacking a ball or bowling a ball. There's so many things that people don't think about. One of the big parts of cricket, which we haven't mentioned, is obviously the sledging as well. <laughs> and, you know, it's one of the few sports. I know it happens occasionally in other sports, you know, at the bottom of a ruck, you may get, you know, someone giving you a dig or saying something. But in cricket, it seems to be common accepted. You're allowed to absolutely, like, let loose on someone. You know, what's your experiences with, with sledging? Yeah, that's a really good point. And especially when test cricket is five days you guys have got it's a tough game when the pitches are flat and the ball's not doing too much so you've got to try and find that edge everybody always talks about earning that edge what is that edge and one part of it could be you just need to try and find something to disrupt the opposition whether that's with your skill or your technique that might um, get one up on the opposition but it's not quite as simple as that sometimes so when it does get flat and it's quiet the only you can just play mind games to try and get the edge over the opposition and Australia. My I played a lot against Australia, um, not in Test cricket, but a lot in ODI cricket, um, and it was flying. Especially little old me, just come into the team. I'm a lot smaller than the others, um, and notoriously England Australia is the biggest rivalry in cricket. There was plenty of words flying around. Put it like that. I wasn't one for abusing others. So, and I wouldn't back myself to be quick-witted enough. 
Um, and also that's not the way I am as an individual. So I just soaked it up and let my back do the talking. But England, Australia, there's notoriously a lot of sledging and a lot of abuse flying around. Um, but in counter cricket, there is. But you play against each other so much. There's so much cricket going on these days that you play against each other so much. And it's a small circuit that as soon as somebody is a bad bloke or is... Um, abusing somebody there's always somebody in the next game that knows about it so you can't do it too much so it doesn't actually happen in domestic mm. cricket as much as you think um, but certainly it's a way when you really get desperate it's a way to get the edge over the opposition and i mean i, I can sorry i can imagine with the australians i mean they they must be the most foul mouthed <laughs> Potty mouse. nation in, in the world um you know and especially like i remember you know I, i've been living you know in kind of these these obscure countries where there isn't you know i don't have access to sport coverage like i used to when i was younger but i remember when like um all the all the player mics came out and the, and the referee mics and the and the stump mm. mics and you could you could every now and then you just hear what they're saying to each other or you'll you'll see it on the, on the screen. You'll see the bowler like saying something to the batsman and there, there's a death stare and then, you know, they, they'll bleep it out to be like, oh, geez, we can't show that. So I imagine it's uh, uh, quite uh, spicy with the Aussie blokes. Yeah, it's, I mean, it does get spicy. I think it's great when but the producers, so I've worked obviously in media and, and, and you, I've commentated. So you, you can turn up the mics so you can hear it yourself. Also, sometimes the producers turn it up so you, the... The guys listening at home can can hear it and sometimes they stitch guys up because recently over the last couple of years there's been a lot of foul language that you can hear as as a punter at home listening to the to the sport that you're watching but i think it's brilliant it gives you an insight into what's going on on the field that so often yeah. you don't have that insight so the mics that the referees are um, using happens a lot in rugby and i love that i think it's brilliant and the same mm. in cricket with the stump mics and i think it should happen more often and I think it should be like expected that there might be the odd expletive or the odd mm. Uh, mm. bit of uh, bad behavior, shall we say, on, on the field. I think it's really good. And it shows the emotion that goes with playing domestic and professional and international sport. I think it's really good. Yeah, it's definitely a different insight. I agree. I really enjoy listening to the the ref cam or the ref mic and listening to how they formulate their decisions. Um, obviously, in rugby, there's a huge level of respect between players and the referee. And so, again, you get, you know, yes, sir, thank you, sir. Very, you know, very, you know, very one level of kind of you know, interaction. But I guess in cricket, there is a danger that people are going to listen to things that they shouldn't really hear and shouldn't really be in public domain. Um, I mean, who do you know who's been caught out with that? And you know, what are the repercussions if someone does get caught saying something they really yeah. shouldn't be saying? There's been a few individuals recently in cricket. I'm not going to name any names, but there's been, and they, but everybody at home can hear it. So you know those individuals, everybody can think of those individuals where somebody mm. has been really foul mouthed because they've been disappointed, they've been angry, they've been frustrated, and they get fined, they get heavily fined. Well, I'm pretty sure they get fined, but also they get points on their license, which is effectively like a driving license. So you can get banned mm. for a game. If you get enough um, of these uh, these points, you can get banned for a game. And that's a lot of money that you're losing. But also it's when, you, when you're a big player or you're missing one, you're, uh, it's an opportunity gone for you to keep your place on the side. You might lose your place, but also it's massive on the side and the individual that's, that's missing that game. Mm. 
I wanted to um, just shift gear a little bit and then and start to pick your brain a little bit about um, you know your own personal philosophy on on health and fitness and training. But can we before we get into that, can we talk a little bit about you know your the the heart condition that you did suffer? What happened? What it is? And you know what you had to do? You know moving forward after that. Yeah, I, I mean, I was I was incredibly lucky um, on the. I think it was the 6th of April. I can't even remember what day it was. 6th of April, uh, 2016, first game of the season. Cut a long story short, 10.30 at Cambridge, I thought I was going to die. I I thought I was going to pass out. I got put on oxygen then. Um, and that's were, you, when, were you in the middle of a game? Yeah, it was the first game of the season. I'd had my longest break. So I just got back from South Africa. Um, I was playing for England uh, in South Africa. And I just got back and I'd had my longest break in years i'm going to say up to three or four years i had two weeks off i had two complete weeks off which i never did um because cricket especially when you play international cricket you play all year round because we're the only northern hemisphere side um test playing nation well now ireland are but um we we obviously play in our summer and then everybody else in the world has their summer and their cricket season so then mm. in our winters we go elsewhere to play so it's a all year round job for us so I had t- two weeks off before the season um, and then I was just fielding a ball in uh, training before the game and suddenly my heart just or my chest just started going mad absolutely mental and I could actually see my heart beating through my shirt um, and I thought I was going to die then at 10 30 uh, and then long story short, I, I got to hospital six, seven hours later because I, I couldn't wait for the hospital. I couldn't wait for the doctor that was due to see me. I told him, I, I rang him and explained my condition. I said, look, I've been sick everywhere. My now my left shoulder is really starting to really starting to hurt me. And obviously that's a sign of a heart attack. Um, my body is packing up. I'm freezing cold. I'm in bed because it's the only place I could be half comfortable. My heart is going mental. I'm being sick everywhere because my body at this stage, little do we know it's packing up because it's looking after its vital organs um, and my shoulder is killing. So the doctor said, just go straight to hospital. Don't wait for an ambulance because it won't come quick enough. So my mum and my, si- uh, my wife that was with me at the time rushed me straight to hospital. Luckily, it was only a couple of miles down the road got in there. I was sick again, all over the floor. I got rushed straight through. They put all the, they put all the wires on me and read my heart rate and my heart rate was 265 beats per minute. And it had been like that for six to seven hours. And they said that was the equivalent of doing, um, I think five, six marathons on the bounce. So my heart was under that much stress for that long. Um, your normal levels, when your heart is under stress, it, you'll it releases an enzyme called troponin and troponin is obviously usually your heart now um i know it's quite stressful speaking to me but you'd imagine the troponin levels would be around naught um my troponin levels then were at forty-two thousand. um so because i was so fit and the structure of my heart was pretty good um even though my heart was clearly really bad the structure of it was pretty good it was able to withstand what i went through and the condition that later got diagnosed with if it presents it's basically uh, you basically die 80 percent of uh, the cases of arvc which is my condition are found in post-mortem so 80 percent of people die that have it um so they usually say 
um, the children survive, the father dies. Because the father's died, they find out in the post-mortem what they've got. So then the children survive because they have their screening and their testing and they know they've got the condition. Um, so I was obviously it's in women as well. It's just an example. So I was very lucky to survive what I did. I was in hospital for three weeks. I couldn't walk for the first week because of the attack that I had. Um, I had no circulation for like months, a few months to six months. I was cold for the next six months because my body had looked after the vital organs so well. Um, cut a long story short, I shouldn't have survived. Everything aligned for me, uh, me to survive. Uh, so I was incredibly lucky. Mm. Yeah. I, I, so what? I'm sorry. I, I find I find it really interesting <laughs> the whole story. I know it's, it sounds weird me saying that because it's about me, but I was just so lucky. Um, and everything aligned. And again, the doctors, the NHS was so good. Um, mm. There were so many good people around me that helped me, aided me when I was at my lowest. And that's why I find mm. it really interesting to talk about. Yes, it's about me and it was in, it's interesting, but there's so many good people around me. I learned so much about myself. I ha it was such a challenge. It was a mental, um, like it should have destroyed me mentally, but I was mm. in a good place mm. to get through it. I had good people around me. Um, mm. And I learned so much about myself and others around me. Um, mm. It was just an interesting, it is an interesting journey. So what is the condition and, and why does it, you know, why has it forced you to stop playing professional cricket? And yeah. what have you, how have you had to adjust your lifestyle since finding out the condition you have? I'm, I'm sure there's some kind of a prescription for how to live. Yeah, it's, I mean, again, it's a long story, but the condition is ARVC, which is arrhythmia right ventricular cardiomyopathy, I think, something okay. like that. Um, it's a mouthful either way. Um, and basically, this condition is accelerated with exercise, which is, a, so there you go, there's answer questions. I mean, it's, a, it's an absolute nightmare for someone that's lived in the gym all his life, loves running and ultimately gets paid to play professional sport. And it's all I know. And it was what I was best at. And it's a massive ego dent. Not just it, your whole life has changed as you know it. My life is over as I know it, or it was. Um, it's what I loved. It's, I'd worked so hard to get to international cricket. I'd had so many setbacks along the way. I mean, I'm talking like everything was rosy the whole career, but I had a lot of setbacks along the way. It wasn't an easy journey. And I finally just got to the top. Um, I had a long way to go. I wasn't anywhere near my peak, um, which was the hardest thing to take because I worked so hard along the journey. So many people as well had got me there, pushed me in the right directions, worked so hard with me, cracked the whip when, they, when I needed it cracking. Um, I just got there and I was just starting to reach my potential in international cricket. And then it all got taken away from me. That was the hardest thing to take. And also, professional sportsman it's pretty cool to say you're a professional sportsman and be the best at what you do um, and to have that taken away from you that's a massive ego dent so that was one of the hardest things um to take um get your head around that not being the best anymore uh, not doing a sport you love and ultimately it's your career it's it's my pay packet at the end of the month now what am i going to do what was i going to do when i was lying in that hospital bed and the doctor told me you can't exercise again. You can't play professional sport. You're going to have to retire. You can't drink alcohol. You can't do this. You're at risk when your heart's 
beating at over 100 beats per minute. Like, so going on to where I'm at now, people look at me and they wouldn't know anything's up. I had an operation. I've got a defibrillator, which is basically like half the size of a standard mobile phone shoved underneath my pec with two wires that are screwed into the bottom of my heart, um, which if anything goes wrong and I have another heart attack or um, cardiac arrest, this restarts my heart. It electrocutes it so it shocks it out the rhythm that it's in. Um, and the feeling of that is like the only way I can describe it. I can't say I've been hit by Anthony Joshua, but I imagine it's something like being hit by Anthony Joshua. But on top of that, putting your hands in the main electrics. So because it electrocutes you and hits you so hard, the sound in my ears is like a gunshot going off. Um, so if if I'm near anything and I hear a loud bang, I instantly let go and I react. I it sends shivers through my body because I, that's the sensation and the noise that I feel mm. when it goes off. Um, so it's pretty so, scary. So you've had, so this defibrillator that you've got, you know, inside your, your chest, as you say, it's so you've had an arrest since then yes. and you've actually had to have this thing kick into yeah. action. So it's kicked off. It's gone off twice. Um, once, I was doing it. I was doing a talk. Um, stress is obviously really bad for you. So I try and avoid mm. any stress. Imagine a life without stress. That would be good fun. Um, but I try and avoid too much stress. And that's me talking as a selector. So there's quite a lot of stress that comes with mm. being a selector of England cricket team. But generally, they're very good. I'm very fortunate um, that they're an exceptionally good side. Um, but yeah, so stress and nerves is a is a really bad for it but so i was going on stage i was talking um it was only in front of a few hundred people but i was talking at my old cricket club at leicester there probably weren't even that many people actually um but i was i'd had a very stressful day i'd been filming with the ecb at lords cricket ground for maybe three four hours before i got in the taxi which was running late so i was stressed I kind of mm. went shuffled as quickly as I could across the ground to get on stage, got on stage. I was joking about um, my heart and everything. Uh, I was trying to get a few uh, jokes from the, or laughs from the audience. And then suddenly poof, I was holding the mic and my defib went off. So the, the sound of my defib went off was like um, times magnified because it was in the mic. Um, so mm. the noise was just, I can just describe it as unbelievable. The sensation was just mad that it just restarted my heart and I, sh I jumped. I got shoved back probably two, three meters back into something because it's that powerful. Um, and then I just, I didn't know what had happened. It took me a few seconds to realize because that's the first time um, it had gone off. I'd only had the operation three weeks before. So I'm amazed that it didn't th blow through my stitches in my chest. Um, but luckily it didn't. And it took me a while, like maybe a few seconds just to realize what had happened. And then I just said, well, if you want to know what a defib going off looks like, you've just seen it. And then I gathered my books, which I had because I needed them uh, because I was commentating straight after. Uh, and then I just walked out and I said, sorry guys, I've got to go. And I just walked out. Um, and then I went to hospital to get it reset. Um, so that the sensation is mad. It's amazing. I can just describe it's scary, seriously scary, but mm. an amazing sensation at the same time. Not mm. nice sensation, but just like technology that it restarts mm. your heart is phenomenal. 
Um, oh my God. And then the other time was um, in Antigua. I was in a swimming pool and it was um, a shock. It wasn't meant to shock me. Cut a long story short, if you wanted to, I've got a book out and it's in my book uh, called Cut Short. And this is probably the best story in the book. I mean, quite sick me saying that. But um, <laughs> I, it, when I was in a swimming pool and this is how unlucky I've been. Basically, it's such an incredible um, bit of kit inside me, this defib. It's so intelligent that it, it kind of picks up. It picks up, obviously, my heartbeat and how fast it's going. And basically, the pool pump in Antigua is a really old pool and a really poor hotel. Um, and it was out of date. And the pool pump in the pool was out of date. And it was it happened. My defib picked up the like the vibrations of the pool pump and it thought my heart was going at 500 beats per minute because it was the identical rhythm of what a heart would be going at at 500 beats per minute so it was an inappropriate shock i was just lying in the swimming pool and then suddenly i shoot through the water because my defib going goes off um, and that was that was hard to take um because when your defib goes off it's yes it's awful because it's restarted your heart but my independence also goes because I can't, I lose my license for six months, a driving mm. license. So just little things that people don't think mm. about. Um, and that really, really hurt me. Uh, and then you have to get it reset wow. in every 15 hours else it alarms. And I didn't realize it was a, it did that. And I was in Antigua, however many thousand, 10,000 miles, the other side of the world. And I needed to get home before it alarmed. And yeah. It was not, oh, so, not a pretty story. Do you have to reset it every 15 hours? No, after no, no. only when it goes off. Only when it goes off. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, yeah. Jesus, you're going to have to get a <laughs> yes. get yourself qualified to reset it yourself. <laughs> exactly. Um, but, I mean, it's, it's been, this, I've had so many amazing experiences as a result of it. I met so many amazing people. Um, I've certainly got a lot, lot tougher. It's funny because before it happened, um, I was really confident in my physique. I was, when it came to cricket, I was incredibly confident about myself and I had my biggest strength was my mental state. And that gave me an edge on other people. I knew my game as well as anybody knew their game. Um, and I was super confident in myself, but as a person, I probably, you can always be more confident and, um, I, you have your doubts, uh, which also drive you, um, but so I was really confident in my body, but I could have been more confident as a person. But now it's funny, it's completely flipped. I'm a lot more confident in myself as an individual, but now my body fails me, which used to be, I used to be so confident in my body. So it's, it's amazing how things have flipped around. Um, but amazing journey um, all in. And it's, yeah, it's been interesting. I think an incredible testament to your mental strength and you as a person is that obviously this it's you know this incident happened in 2016 where you had forced to retire from cricket I think it was I saw you tweeting in January 2017 so just a few months later setting yourself a goal that you're going to be a, a single handicap golf player <laughs> yeah. and so again yeah, that's 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 who you are as a person finding that new challenge that new goal to push yourself you know in, in whatever you're physically capable to do and again, that's, that's an incredible, you know, incredible mental strength and fortitude that you have. I'm, I'm intrigued. I know you're handicapped now, it's, uh, but it's incredible. I think you're three, is that right yeah. now? Yeah, so, so I'm glad that you mentioned golf. So golf is like saved my <laughs> life because there's so many things that I can't do. So it's always, everybody always says, oh, you can't do this, you can't do that. But 
what can you do? Think about what can you do? Don't always tell me what I can't do. Tell me what I can. And I think about what I can do and not what I can't. So golf is a one thing I can't, I can do with my condition. I can't, it says you can't be competitive because obviously the more competitive you get, the more your heart rate raises. Um, but golf is, it's low key. It's not too strenuous on the body, but equally it get, gets me enough exercise that I need walking around the course seven miles every day. If I can play golf every day, but also it's a great challenge for me. I never played golf before cricketers either love it or hate it. And I was one of those cricketers that hated it. I don't want to stand in the field for any longer than I have to. I've just been stood in the field for five days. I'm not going on the golf course to stand in another field. Um, but now I love it because it was the one thing I could do and I can challenge myself uh, a new technique and it challenges you mentally as well. Um, and I wanted something to get better at, so, to compete against others at. Um, so I, a real drive and passion uh, of mine is to get better at golf and I obviously I started exactly 14 uh four years ago exactly four years ago because mm. after my operations I couldn't swing a club so when I could swing a club I got into golf which which was in October 2016 I'm now down to 2.5 um I yeah I love it I love being competitive I love learning I love learning a new skill um and when you're competing against others but you're also competing against the course and you're always trying to get better every time i go on that mm -hmm. course i'm trying to learn a new shot i'm trying to learn something or i'm trying to repeat a particular motion which is an absolute nightmare um, because it's always changing and evolving um and yeah i love it so today i beat my coach for the first time off scratch so I Amazing. shot three under today um, just before this uh, podcast. So I literally come straight off the golf course and onto this podcast. Um, and I am so stiff. I get the one thing I, I was always good in, in cricket. I was naturally pretty stiff, but it didn't hamper me in any way uh, in cricket. But now I get really stiff and it hampers me in golf. So this is where you guys come in. My red light uh, unit is brilliant. I've got it at home. Um, I lie in front of it like every morning um, and it genuinely one it's obviously aids my sleep and helps me with that but two it certainly helps me with my aches and pains and uh, and it relieves my amount of tension that I have in my back I, I should be lying in front of it now right whilst I'm speaking to you guys it's that sore um, but I'm looking forward to getting on to, uh, in front of it later Amazing. That's that's great to hear. Thank you. And that was completely unprompted as well. Yeah, that was unprompted <laughs> as well. I can vouch for that. That, that. that was not a sponsored. That was not a sponsored comment. So I'm interested. Um, to, we've talked about stress a lot, and obviously that's something you need to you know, reduce and minimalize in your life as much as possible. But golf brings it with it certain stresses as well. I'm sure if you were on the you know the 17th at TPC Sawgrass, yeah. you know that infamous yeah. island green, you know, going for that. You know, what stress management techniques have you got and you know what are, what are you able to implement especially in those sort of situations yeah. to keep your heart rate down yeah. and uh, you know keep under control it's really good because i like i am all i'm always racking my brains for different experiences that i've had that's going to aid me in this moment so what can help me from my past experiences that is going to help me in this moment? And I always do that. That's why I was all about experiences in the past and learning from different experiences and the crossovers from different sports are massive. Like what I've learned from cricket that's helped me with, with golf is unbelievable. Just 
Um, like for example, if you're nervous, everybody always thinks about the outcome. Why don't you get into your process, get into your routines, get into your process. So I think, um, and people say, so I think about my technique. People say, oh, you just want to focus on hitting the ball. If it was, if only it was that simple all the time, guys. I, so I think about, to take away the nerves and the anxiety of what's going to happen at the other end, I bed into myself and I immerse myself in my technique. So I think about different positions that I need to concentrate on to allow me to get the ball in a decent position mm. at the other end. So let's say in golf, to the golf geeks out there, like my takeaway, if I, if I know I, my takeaway is in a good position, then generally the rest is going to take care of itself because I'm a natural ball striker. Um, mm. It was going to give me the best chance to, uh, to get it in a decent position at the other end on the green. I'm not going, oh my God, there's water all down the right. Don't hit it right. Don't hit it right. Um, so to stop me thinking like that, I will go, okay, what do I need not to hit it right? So then I think about my technique and then that takes away all your anxieties about what's happening at the other end. Like mm. just things like, that's why it's very similar to cricket. It's a very technical game, but it's also a mental game. Uh, and that's why I love it so much. And there's so many crossovers that I've learned from cricket. One, I've got the professional mindset from being in tricky situations and working it out in cricket, which is certainly going to help me um, when I'm playing in a medal at my golf course at Hollingwell or um, playing in a, a match play event against somebody else. Uh, like yesterday, I loved it. I was playing against um, somebody in a competition and I was three down up to 12 holes. I was three down the whole way. And then 113, 114, 115, uh, and then I won it on the last. Like I just love it. I get being in those situations um, and coming out on top. Those are the most satisfying um, situations. When one, when you come out on top, but you've had to come from behind, and it hasn't mm. always gone according to plan. A bit like my career. Everything. It doesn't. Things don't always go according to plan. But as long as you get there in the end, it doesn't matter how you get there. It's like there's no pictures on the scorecard of how you got to those four shots at the end of the hole. It doesn't matter mm. if you dudded a couple of shots, but then you've hold a 40 foot putt. Uh, I'm mm. one of those that it doesn't matter how it's how many. Uh, and that's what I love about the game. The ultimate comeback story. I think <laughs> we, we all love an underdog, yeah. but that's incredible. Yeah. Um, I wanted to speak to you a little bit, if I can, James, about your own, kind of your current personal philosophy on your on your health and your wellness and your you know what if you are you know able to do some kind of training at all because i'm just thinking you know in terms of you know your position in life and where you were as an athlete and where you are now uh, um i'm probably thinking that you've had some some great access to to professional you know coaches and nutritionists or things like that and the fact that you you know you were willing to try red light therapy and you're using it it suggests to me that you've, you've probably got a, a few other interesting, you know, habits up your sleeve in terms of your wellness. Yeah. I, I mean, sleep. Uh, I mean, the way the professional game is that even the amateur game recovery is so important. Um, and with recovery, um, sleep is massive as well, because that's number one, as, as well as doing all your recovery, like your nutrition, your stretching, your, 
Um, people don't cool down as much now, but anything that aids recovery is massive to give you an edge to be able to perform better the next day. And even in mm -hmm. domestic, in professional sport, whatever sport it is, it comes around so often. There is that much of it because there's a demand for it um, in whatever sport it is. Um, it happens so often. It puts more emphasis on recovery to allow you to be able to perform the level that you need to, to, to compete. Um, and it's the same in am amateur sport. Think um, you can be whoever you are doing, whether it's marathon running, whether it's just playing football on a Saturday at the weekend, recovery is so important to allow you to keep at a certain level or get better. If you're spending six days recovering from the, um, the Saturday, you're not going to be in the best shape um, to perform the next time you go out. So recovery is massive. And I think, yes, um, there are so many things like nutrition is massive, but sleep is, is huge. Um, and I was a really, in my last year of playing international sport, I was a really bad sleeper. And what comes with people that sleep badly is also, there's a big correlation between lack of sleep and sleeping really poorly and mental health issues. Uh, and I, d I didn't have mental health issues. I, we, everybody's anxious about so many things in a day. And I was certainly anxious about certain things, uh, whether it be fielding, whether it will be batting, whether it will be playing Australia in the first game of the World Cup uh, in front of 100,000 people at the MCG. We all get anxious, uh, but it's all relative. And my anxious, my reason for being anxious might be different to yours, but it's all relative. And, um, but I'm not saying that is depression. It's just uh, the way it is. Um, and I think sleep is so important and I've so certainly and again this is not being teed up but I've certainly noticed a difference um, in with red light therapy that's aided my sleep um, and and helped me recover um, but as well as uh, being on top of your nutrition is really important and understanding it as well I think that's really important um, knowing the reasons why you might have a certain supplement or certain foods and what knock-on effect that will have to you positive or negative i think mm. it's the understanding as much as anything uh, which is going to aid you to have that right nutrition at the right time um, is mm -hmm. really important and learning about nutrition uh, when to have things when not to have things what knock-on effect it's going to have whether that be food or drink mm. like cramps everybody think if you get cramp it's because you haven't had enough fluids well yeah it is because you haven't you could have more fluids but it's massively um uh, linked to not eating enough and not eating the right things as well everybody what until mm -hmm. until i got cramp playing 45 degrees heat on my comeback international game against sri lanka i got 90 i got full body cramps and I, all I knew was it was, of course, I hadn't had enough fluids. Yeah, but little did I know it was because I didn't have a big enough breakfast or I didn't eat lunch that day as well. It's, it's mm. just a lack of knowledge that is really going to hurt you as well. Um, mm. So, I, I, yeah, it's nutrition, sleep, um, different things that are going to aid your recovery is, is massive. Mm. And I'm, a, I'm one for trying lots of different things. Hence why I got into red light therapy. Any, any little that's, thing that's going to help me and aid me in my recovery and ultimately allow me to perform better, I'm all for it. Awesome. 
Um, that's that's a beautiful segue because I was gonna I was gonna also speak to you about your your sleep hygiene. So I you know I don't I don't know exactly how much you know how much you know about sleep and how to optimize it, but um, have you got? I mean, are you aware of the the phrase sleep hygiene and how to kind of alter your environment to to kind of uh, optimize your sleep so that once you get into bed, biologically you're actually primed. To have the best possible sleep is are you aware of that yes i i'm away aware of it vaguely but it makes total sense because somebody that struggled with his sleep at the back end of my career um like i said it's massive yeah. for your recovery and your mental state um to allow you to go out and perform and be free and not be sluggish and lacking that extra 10 percent that you really need when it comes to performing at the top um i a absolute game changer for me because i'm a really light sleeper a game changer for me is a white noise machine. So I bought a white noise machine. Oh my, it's honestly, it changed my, my sleep. Um, now I sleep a lot deeper than I ever have before. Um, and also just things like getting in good habits because every, well, I'm very fortunate to have a TV in my room, just not watching a TV before you go to go to mm. bed not being on your phone all the time if you can't sleep oh everybody mm. picks up their phone that's the worst thing you can do uh, because mm. of the lights that it it gives off um and as well as the other things that it has but just things like that because mm. i was sleeping so poorly i did a little bit of research into it i spoke to people basically the do's and the don'ts and uh i learned a little bit a little bit about things that i should do and things that i i shouldn't but now it's so good when you have a good night's sleep because I had so many nights where I didn't sleep well. Um, and it's funny, after I got ill, this should never be the case. After I got ill, when I was in hospital, well, apart from the lights and the noises going off 24 seven, after I got ill, I actually slept really well. And you'd imagine that I should have more worries than ever um, and I shouldn't sleep well. Um, but I actually, sleep, I actually slept pretty well uh, after I got, ill um which should never have been the case it's bizarre how it works i guess with your cricket career comes a huge amount of pressure whether you acknowledge yeah. it or not you know consciously your subconscious will carry exactly. that with you and thinking about the next game the next session it definitely is a, is a big weight on your shoulders i'm sure and it's so good to hear you talk about recovery because obviously brian and i we speak to a lot number of athletes and you know not only athletes but the medical practitioners and recovery is such an underrated protocol and it dictates everything you do. It locks in your gains, allows you to then train harder the next day. It really just you know, prevents injuries, prolongs your career. There's so many things, but even now, you know, we were speaking to someone recently, Brian and I, and we, we talked about recovery and they know a professional athlete who says, oh, don't bother with recovery because I try and avoid the physio. And their recovery was a part of Thatcher's after a game or something. Mm -hmm. And so, again, even now, still in professional sports, it's just not being hit home. And again, it's compromising their performance, their ability to play week in, week out, even you know, to, to reach the pinnacle of their game. And yeah. again, you know, everyone's got different aspirations, but you know, without, without that level of education, of course, people, you know, people aren't going to be able to, to achieve their, their ultimate sort of goals. Exactly. And a bit like what I was talking about in educating yourself in understanding nutrition and how it's going to help you is exactly the same in recovery. Obviously, that is one mm. part of recovery. That's a massive part of recovery. But mm. also understanding those other little things that are good for you, what are bad for you, 
um, and how they're going to impact you. Like having a couple of pints after a game, how that's going to impact you and not sleeping after a game. Um, and like also and like think- just investing in yourself is massive mm-hmm. to give yourself the best chance. Life is hard enough as it is without not giving yourself the best chance. And we, we're talking about, yeah, yeah, to get better. But what does getting better mean? It means a hell of a lot more money at the end of the road as well. Um, like, that's the thing. Like, it's yes, to get better. But what is the knock-on effects of getting mm. better and playing to your peak performance? It means potentially, especially at a professional level, that you're going to make a hell of a lot more money and you're giving yourself the best chance to perform. And that's what it's all about. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. And I think that's something that's been um, missed. Sorry, Brian. I've just, I've just made up a phrase um, that we can all use. I would like to copyright it, but we can all use it. Recovery is the precursor to performance. 100%. Right. That's what you've got to, you've got to recover properly to, to then perform even better the next day. Uh, James Strong is currently wearing a yellow pair of glasses. Are you are you familiar with the practice of blue light blocking in terms of your your health and performance or sleep? I have been made aware of them because my good mate Anthony Dyer, that works um, for Performance Tech, has uh, mentioned to them uh, mentioned them to me, and I would love a pair. And I am going to try my hardest to wangle a pair of Anthony Dyer. Um, so, yes, I do know a brief little bit about them, but James, please enlighten me uh, with some more knowledge. Sure. So, um, obviously, light hygiene is a big passion of Brian and mine. Um, hence, we brought up red light therapy because we experienced a huge amount of benefits from it. And that led us down a bit of a rabbit hole about what light does to your body. Um, and as you know, um, there are a number of lights that have metabolic and biological impacts on us. And one of those lights is blue lights. Um, in the morning, you'll get a lot of blue lights, and that's a signal to your body it's daytime. And again, you'll have a big spike in cortisol. It kind of stimulates you, gets you pepped up for the day. Um, and then as the sun starts to set and the blue light diminishes, um, you start to wind down. And in theory, if there weren't any technological kind of distractions, there would be no blue light in your environment post sunset. And that's a very strong signal. Um, to you know, to your body to start winding down, start producing melatonin, and get ready to sleep. But obviously, in the modern world we've created, we're, we're surrounded by blue light, and so um, your biggest receptors are in your eyes, and therefore it's important that um, you start blocking blue light from from close to sunset. And the glasses I'm wearing now, they're um, the yellow lenses, and they block. Um, all blue lights uh, in the range of 400 to 450, which protects my eyes and again, allows my body to start winding down. And then just before bed, I've got a set of red lenses that block all blue and green light, which both of those impact uh, melatonin production. I'll put them on, you know, one to two hours before bed. And it just means that my body, you know, knows it's nighttime and I start doing the natural hormonal production. And it does also mean I can watch TV. I can do a bit of work on the computer and I could actually look at my phone and it's not going to compromise my sleep. I still try and avoid those things just because again, for my mental sort of well-being, I like to wind down, read a book, spend some time with my, my wife and my daughter. Um, but again, it just it, I know it protects me and protects my sleep should I be exposed or need to look at anything with that blue light. So again, it, this is actually the one biggest thing that, that had a positive impact on my sleep was starting to wear these blue blocking glasses. 
And so it's, it's definitely something I think you should add to your armory for your sleep hygiene. And again, we'll, we'll happily send you some glasses to try out as well. I love that. And that makes total sense. It's like, that's one thing I learned about screens before bed. Um, they're just basically a no-no to aid me in my sleep and certainly to get to sleep quicker rather than tossing and turning and lying in bed, thinking about things, um, which is, is never mm -hmm. ideal. Um, so yeah, I would love um, to get a pair of them and try them out. And um, yeah, I think that'd be brilliant because I've heard, I've heard great things from performance techs, Anthony Diet. So um, I will be looking forward to getting my hands on a pair. Fantastic. And again, for the international yes, athletes up. traveling, you know, to mm. different time zones, they're a great, great way to hack your circadian rhythm to realign with the oh. local time zone quite quickly as well. So obviously if, if you had a pair of these in, in your cricket career as well, that would be, you know, obviously you've done a number of tours to Australia. Yes. It'd be a great way to really help realign that circadian rhythm. That's massive for, um, especially like you say, in cricket, because we travel so much. And even mm. if you, so Australia is massive, obviously the, the time zones that you're flying through. But even when you're traveling in Australia, sometimes a few hours time difference is a nightmare. Um, and it really puts your mm. body clock out of sync. So even when you're playing in the ashes in Australia or playing in um a ODI series over there, I found it really tough. Just those few hours time difference um, and the lack of sleep you get because of the time difference um, is a nightmare. So those would be really beneficial to get a, a pair. And I'll speak to the, um, the England players certainly about that. It makes total sense to me. Mm. You know, it's, it's such a, just something as simple as wearing, you know, those blue blocking glasses and what, what we've done with Red Light Rising, I know this is turning into a bit of a pitch, but what we've done is Red Light Rising is, is make them exceptional quality and, you know, in our opinion, make them also look yeah, very cool. Very important. Because, you know, if, you, if you're trying to say to a squad of, of young, exactly, you're trying to say to a squad of young athletes, hey guys, you need to wear these tonight after sunset. You're, you know, you're going out for dinner, you're messing around on your phone, you're calling your families, you have to wear these. I know it looks a little bit silly, it's a little bit unusual, but the, the sleep benefits and therefore the performance and recovery benefits you're going to get are, are priceless. Yeah, absolutely. Just to reiterate what Brian said, you know, it's, um, we're trying to um, educate people that, you know, there are opportunities to really, you know, improve and look after your performance and recovery. And by rolling out these tools, um, you know, again, I'm working with people like yourself who are such a you know, big stature in sport. It'd be amazing to, again, you know, help people get educated how to take their performance to the next yeah, level. It makes, it makes total sense. Just trying to find that edge to get a little bit better, recover better. Um, and like, the thing is, even if people wouldn't, would be put off by, um, by wearing sunglasses in the house or indoors you don't have to necessarily, let's say you're going out for dinner and you're, you're scared of like wearing sunglasses inside, well, you don't have to wear them out for dinner. But when you are indoors and you're more comfortable, whack them on, why not? When you're comfortable in your own environment, why not try and get that edge, try and get that little bit more sleep to aid your recovery? It makes total sense. You know what, like my, my personal experience with it is that, you know, when I, when I have, I mean, I've been wearing blue blocking glasses for a long time, um, and once you get used to the feeling of how it feels to, to cut out that artificial light before sleep, it becomes, it becomes worth it because, you know, what, what tends to happen is your eyes, 
return to normal function because they don't have to deal with this overwhelming artificial light in the evening. Once you start wearing your blue blockers, your eyes then return to baseline where they're used to feeling better. And then when you are caught short without your blue blockers and you're in a, you know, in a restaurant with some horrible lighting, that's when you notice like, oh my God, like this, this light is really affecting my eyes. So it's, you know, and, and I know, I'm pretty sure you're going to feel the same, James. You know, once you, after the first couple of nights wearing these things around the house and, you know, like James was saying, like you can still hit pump out some emails, you can watch some Netflix, you can mess around on your phone. And you'll notice the very palpable difference of protecting your eyes and your brains from that, that overwhelming, um, you know, blue light in the evening. It's super, super valuable. Good, man. I'm looking forward to it. I think, um, you know, unless, unless James Strong has, has any more questions or if James Taylor has any more comments he'd like to make, we're, we're kind of heading towards the end of the podcast. No, I, I think we've covered some great ground here and really given our listeners a lot, a lot to think about, really. Yeah, no, I, I just want to thank you guys, one, for getting me involved in red light therapy. I, I think it's brilliant. And like I said, any way for individuals to get an edge on others or uh, allow themselves to recover better, mm -hmm. recover better to aid their performance, why not? Invest in yourself, take a little bit of time out to put yourself first uh, and give it a go. I, I, think, I think it's brilliant. Um, and I'm looking forward to having a go with the, the glasses as well. Uh, because awesome. as we know, sleep is so important. Mm -hmm. It's uh, like, like that amazing phrase I just made up. Recovery is the precursor to performance. Um, James, before we sign off, we've got, a, we've got a last little feature here. It's just kind of like a, a quick fire round of, of questions to yourself. It's, you know, it's nothing, you don't have to go too crazy in depth. Just the first thing that kind of pops into your mind. And then we sign off with a, a very short reading from a book called The Daily Stoic which, um, you know, by the sounds of your own personal no. philosophy on, on life, are you familiar with stoicism? Yep. Awesome. Um, yeah, I've, I've listened to a couple of podcasts, in particular golf podcasts. Um, I forgot the author. What's the, the book I'm referring to is a guy called Ryan Holiday. I love him. Yeah, Brian. Awesome. It's, awesome. So yeah, really good. Excellent. So we'll, we'll get to the stoicism and, you know, it's, I'll just read a little passage out of the book and, you know, we just have a little comment if, if anything comes to mind and then, and then we hit the road. So the first quick fire question for you, James, is what advice could you give yourself, you know, where you are now? And if you could go back to say when you were 14, 15 year old, years old, what piece of advice would you give yourself? Wow. That is a good one. Um, <laughs> um... I think, I don't know. I think enjoy the highs, enjoy the highs um, when, you, when you're there because they soon pass you by um, and just enjoy and cherish every moment of success because there are more effectively failures um, than more bad days in professional sport than good days, especially in cricket, especially when you're, you're a batsman. So just really, really enjoy those good days. Awesome. That's fantastic. Um, and your favorite or best book that you've read that's really made an impact on you? Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> apart from my own, um, <laughs> there's, there's a book, um, Matt Hampson, who I'm actually an, an ambassador for the, um, 
the Hanboy Foundation, the Matt Hampson Foundation. And Matt Hampson um, has writ uh, written a book. It's a uh, autobiography. It is an outstanding read. So any listeners, uh, and it puts things in perspective. It is an amazing, I'm not a great reader, but I love um, good books. And so Matt Hampson wrote a book and it is phenomenal. It's a, it's a really funny, uh, witty, uh, but honest. He was a he was a, a rugby player that got paralysed from the neck down and um, and can't breathe for himself. Obviously, can't do much. But he's the most inspirational guy um, I've ever met, and I'm now ambassador for his foundation. So uh, that is definitely worth a read. Amazing. We'll definitely um, look into that. So we're going to link. Outstanding. You know, we're we're going to link uh, to everything you've said. Obviously, we'll link to your book as well so people can find it easily. Um, <laughs> your best or favorite piece of technology, and you don't have to say uh, red light therapy, but your favorite piece of technology. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, I would like to say red light therapy, but I think uh, my mobile phone comes just ahead of that. Okay. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I think I would be nowhere in life without my mobile phone. Mm -hmm. I think it's a genius bit of kit. Mm. As as a tool, I mean, I'm I'm a massive fan okay, of so. you know the mobile phone and the, obviously the internet, but I'm always so cautious to 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 tell myself it's a tool. I, I'm trying to not use it as a distraction. I'm trying to not use it as a a, a space filler or a time killer, because I I think that's you know that's that's the road to um you know a dopamine dependency yes. and uh, and some serious issues. Um, last question for you, your best or favorite health hack or health habit, something that you perform very regularly to keep yourself uh, in shape kind of thing? Um, it's a very golf, um, golf, definitely golf. And I'm going to say golf because for me, somebody that can't exercise or do intense exercise, mm -hmm. it is a great way of exercising for me, walking around the course to learning a new skill challenging myself against the course against somebody else uh, but it's really good for my head um as well so i'm going to have to say golf and something i want to do more of is pilates uh for a number of reasons oh, but i'm very stiff uh and i need to get more flexible so something that i'd mm. want to do is more pilates awesome highly recommend that for sure amazing and uh we've now just about to sign off with this episode of the project red podcast as our regular listeners will know we always like to you know get a little stoic towards the end stoic philosophy is something that's really helped me uh, through some tough times um you know i found it during a very tough time in my life and it's it's just basically a very practical very logical philosophy that is ancient but can just as easily be applied uh, into, in fact, it's crucial in the modern world, in my opinion. And I always, you know, I read from a book called The Daily Stoic by Ryan Holiday and Stephen Hanselman. It's basically a, a page a day uh, stoic inspiration. And today's um, title is called The Fountain of Goodness. Today, we could hope that goodness comes our way. Good news, good weather, good luck or we could find it in ourselves. Goodness isn't something that's going to be delivered by mail. You have to dig it up inside your own soul. You find it within your own thoughts and you make it 
with your own actions. I really like that. That really kind of speaks to what James said in the beginning of the podcast. You know, you have to, you know, you have to create, you have to use your mind to create the inspiration and the energy to, to then have the, you know, the physical actions come a little bit easier in your life to, to just get better at things. Fantastic. Yeah, totally agree. And as, as James also said earlier about, you know, what are you good at in life? You're going to find something it's, you know, what are you passionate about and you, you know, follow your dreams kind of thing there. And I think you, you demonstrated that with your, your, your golf career to date so far as well. Like it's truly inspirational what you've achieved in the past and what you're still doing today. Thank you very much. And on that, that's, that's, I love that book and Ryan Holiday is brilliant. Uh, I've listened to some of his podcasts and it really resonates with me. And one thing I would say to people, just embrace the challenge. I love a good challenge. I mean, this is an excessive challenge, my health, <laughs> um, but I do enjoy and I embrace a challenge um, and just, just take it on um, think about what you can do, not what you can't um, and embrace it and go with it wonderful james thank you so much for making the time to join us today on this podcast it's it's always an honor to speak to people like yourselves that have you know achieved greatness in in not only mentally but obviously in your in your in your sporting career so we really do thank you for your time i thank james strong for his time as well it's always great to to, to spend time with you and uh, thank you to our listeners thank you for everybody for tuning in again if you enjoyed this podcast we would love if you could leave some uh, reviews on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcast these days, leave us some comments. Let us know what you think. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys. We'll see you later. Bye-bye.